Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, nudges. Welcome to this month's episode of Obehave. I'm Mike Hughes and I'm joined remotely um, on the airwaves virtually by Kimberly Richter. Hello, Kimberly. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. Great to be anywhere in these times, Kimbo, isn't it? <laughs> um, so today's episode is around unconscious bias. So unconscious bias has been in the news a lot recently with the focus around diversity and inequality. We only thought it was right to shine a light on diversity, not only as behavioral scientists, but also within the discipline as a whole, Kimberly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, as a discipline, we are notoriously weird. So that means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So that's all the way from our samples that we choose for field experiments based on what's most available to us, uh, all the way to the where um, educational opportunities are geographically located and the way that professional hiring practices are conducted. So the implications of that are, are really limiting, um, especially when we know that diversity is key to driving creativity, um, an important prerequisite for, for any effective team. Um, so we're really pleased to, to share this discussion that uh, we had with some of the leaders in the field on this topic at our most recent festival of behavioral science and creativity, Nudge Talk. Um, so you're going to hear perspectives. Yeah, woo woo! <laughs> uh, you're going to hear perspectives from Chris Graves, Chris Graves of Ogilvy Consulting. Um, also Grace Lorden, who is a professor at the LSE. Uh, Neela Saldana from the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics, and Sarita Bethay, a uh, behavioral science practitioner within Coca-Cola. Cool. And I think, one, it's the power of hosting a global conference um, that we can bring in um, as many different voices as possible to talk about a similar theme. Um, and the, the, the reason that we wanted to, to focus on this was because it's just amazing to see practitioners of behavioral science almost questioning their own biases that we have. So we know that um, even when we when we offer unconscious bias um, as a um, as a as a service when we when we speak to clients, actually, are we susceptible to our own unconscious bias too, Kimberly? Yeah, of course. I think the research tells us that familiarity bias, halo effect, you know, those are very common and um, deeply entrenched, even if you do know about them. So I think we have to be really active in trying to counteract the influence of those biases in our own life. Um, and what was really powerful in this discussion is that each of our speakers really made a commitment to do, do more than just their best, but really follow through with action. Um, and it was great to chat with you earlier today, Mike, about ways that we could possibly do that on, on the Obehave platform as well. Completely, because I, th I think um, one of Sarita's uh, final lines was, you can't be what you don't see. Mm. And I just thought that that was a really powerful line. And we've been discussing 
ourselves internally that how do we bring in as many diverse voices as possible and when we look through the the, the roster of amazing speakers that we've been lucky to have on Behave, how do we make sure that in the future that they're as diverse as possible yeah so we've got a plea to the um to our army of Behave listeners you guys out there that how do we increase our network um of speakers in the future to make sure that they're as diverse as possible we've been really lucky to have amazing speakers in the past but looking through who we've had have those been as diverse as they could be maybe not but now we've now we've recognized this and we've got an opportunity how do we bring in as many diverse speakers as possible and that's where we need your help so please please um we'll be putting this out on social as well but please do give us um some speakers that you feel that we should be speaking to to extend our network and make our speaker list as diverse um, as possible in the future. Yeah, we're going to turn over every stone. So please, please help us to to broaden our reach and broaden our network in that effect. Yes, and the final thing we just want to also say is thank you for all those who uh, joined us for Nudgestock. Uh, 15 more or less continuous hours of um, behavioral science content. Uh, thank you to all the speakers who gave their time. Uh, thank you for everyone who, who managed to join us on the day and also um, feel like we were we were growing the behavioural science community. And we the footage is now up online. Kimberly, is that right? It is online um, for your viewing pleasure. And I also just want to shout out to the, the survivors that lasted the full 15 hours. There was a good <laughs> fair <laughs> number of them. And I feel like we should make you all some T-shirts. Um, so yeah. The conversation was very vibrant on Twitter. Um, among other places so cool thanks everyone again uh, head over to our youtube channel where you can see all of those 15 hours and uh, relive the glory okay i think that's it kimberly should we cut to the audio yeah let it roll when you study human behavior as an expertise it might make a difference if you studied more than one kind of human and in behavioral science, the criticism has been for a while, we're too weird. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And you can probably add a couple of others like male and white and older. But uh, it makes a big difference at a couple levels. It makes a big difference in the people we study. And it makes a big difference in the people that we want to be the talent in the industry, whether they are students, professors, or practitioners. And joining us now to take on that challenge of discussing this are Sarita Bethay. She is the head of behavioral science at Coca-Cola. Neela Saldana with the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. It's a research and advisory firm dedicated to advancing and applying behavioral science for poverty alleviation in the global South. And Grace Lorden, Associate Professor of Behavioral Science at the London School of Economics. Grace, over to you. Thank you all for tuning in tonight. So if you are a behavioral scientist sitting out there, you'll know that we do tend to study time. So thank you for giving us the privilege of your time. I'm gonna speak specifically about weirdness in academia. Um, this is the place where students often get inspired and often make a decision about whether they will actually become a behavioral scientist through taking a module or taking a degree. Um, students will certainly get looked to the faculty they meet for inspiration along the way. 
Um, the first thing that I want to want to recognize is that behavioral science isn't in itself not a discipline, and it does rely on investigations that come from a number of disciplines, the majority coming from economics and psychologists at the moment. So what I mean by that, if you look around the world and you look at who's branding themselves as behavioral scientists, normally they will have come through either an economics or psychology major and then gone on to do some other masters. Um, within this, development economists, I think, have pushed the frontier. Um, not just in behavioral science, actually, but in economics in general. And they ha have done this by producing an emerging stock of knowledge that relies on field experiments to understand behavior in a variety of contexts, lots of different countries, and more and more often modeling effects in the short run and the long run. They consider high state decisions that, that really affect real people. They look at adaptation. They think about heterogeneous treatment effects and they discuss general equilibrium effects. And this is where I would really love to see the, the field of behavioral science go in general, because outside development economics, behavioral science academic research is very more most focused on weird samples. As we've already heard, that's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, developed countries. And it's even more than that. So we tend to focus on highly selected samples, over relying on our own students and survey respondents as samples, looking at questions that involve low stakes and looking at very short run effects, very different to the development economists that are up here. And the question then becomes, well, why this research? Well, firstly, the majority of behavioral science modules and degrees are in Western educated rich developed countries, mainly in the UK, Ireland and the US. Um, and secondly, these studies are actually pretty useful as a first pass to understand um, human behavior. So they do have a place in the literature. Thirdly, they are actually very cheap to do time-wise, and universities that have behavioral science modules and faculty usually have the structures and resources that make this type of research easy to conduct. And this is a barrier to entry for behavioral science research. And we lose a lot in this pattern by over-focusing on weird samples. So one thing we know for sure as behavioral scientists is that context matters. And by not moving outside such selected samples often enough, we now know too little about behavioral science lessons that are core to human behavior and those that are born out of studying a specific context. This is really important because we're living in a globalized world. So learning whether some of the facts coming out of small weird studies replicated more interesting populations in the weird countries themselves and beyond is necessary to demonstrate how useful behavioral science is. On this, I think academics and behavioral science, uh, uh, academics who are behavioral scientists in weird countries that already have the structures and resources in place need to start more actively building partnership with academics, think tanks and firms in non-weird countries and just get on with doing research that's outside the weird context. This will give us immediate role models for our students outside the university and the collaborations will obviously bear obvious fruit for learning. In the spirit of avoiding virtue signaling, which I think is going to be a theme for our panel tonight, and moving towards more committed action, I'm actually setting up a research centre at the LSE in November called the Inclusion Initiative. And I've already committed to taking learnings from the lab into firms in London. Um, so for Nudge Stock tonight, I'm also going to commit to doing this in non-weird settings by building the type of partnerships that I've just described. But let's go back to the students now. So universities in North America and the UK are actually de uh, creating designated behavioral science departments and hubs that are awarding degrees to students on this topic. I'm a director of an MSc in behavioral science at the LSC. And I'm pleased to say that the students do come from around the world. We have a great representation in the classroom of non-weird countries. We have a fantastic pipeline. Let's keep that global pipeline. Let's keep them looking at global questions. But the faculty that face these students are not diverse. Uh, for example, the share of males in these universities is more greater than 75%. I 
spend some time today working that out. And more than 90% of the faculty are coming from weird countries themselves. So it's important that universities look at their own hiring practice and prevent against the biases that they study themselves, like familiarity bias, affinity bias, and the halo effect. In addition, we should move as universities away from relying on signals that don't necessarily in always indicate talent, such as having gone to an elite university and fish in a wider pool that is truly global. Finally, it is also important that universities start, and I think this is actually necessary for all disciplines that have a pipeline problem, to hire senior faculty that have a revealed history of nurturing global talent. This is a valuable trait in a new hire, and it's easily visible in a person's CV, so we don't need to rely on, on what they say, we can look at what they've done in the past. But hiring shifts like this do take time, so it's therefore a good idea to pay attention to what we're actually teaching our students now by having an inclusive curriculum, making sure that we have papers that are from around the world and we're honest about our students about gaps in the literature. We also need to encourage our students in their own research to consider questions that are beyond weird. This is obviously easier if we're doing it ourselves, echoing the importance of partnership buildings. I've already committed to this, but I am one person. So if you're out there tonight and you're an academic in behavioral science or conduct research in behavioral science, maybe you can do the same. If we get to critical mass, we also get to a tipping point that can cause real change, which would be a super cool legacy for Nudge Stop Virtual 2020. Thank you all for listening. And I'm now gonna hand over to the fantastic Mia. Thank you, Grace. Uh, I think you echoed a lot of what I'm going to say. Uh, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about my experience actually setting up a behavioral science unit in one of those non-weird countries, which is India. But before that, and this is on my bucket list of things to do, I've always wanted to tell this joke in a party. So, you know, what better than 30,000 people at this nudge stock party? So there's this, uh, there's this man coming after a party, he's a little worse for wear, and he's under the street light, and he's desperately searching for something. And the Good Samaritan comes up and says, what are you searching for? And he says, I've lost my keys. So they both get around to searching, and after you know hours of fruitless searching, they can't find the keys. So the, the Good Samaritan says, look, like we searched everywhere. Are you sure you've dropped your keys here? And so the man says, uh, oh no, I'm pretty sure I haven't dropped my keys here. Actually, I think I dropped them at that corner on the side of the road. <laughs> and the Good Samaritan says, then why are we searching for your keys here if you didn't drop them here? And the drunk man says, oh, that's easy because the light is much better here. And sometimes I feel, you know, in behavioral science that we are those drunk men where we're searching for our keys, uh, you know, where the light is better rather than where the problems actually are. And although you mentioned, Grace, that it's better in development, I still think we have a long way to go. So in 2017, I moved from New York uh, to New Delhi, India, to head up and to set up a Center for Social and Behavior Change at Ashoka University. And the center was funded by a grant from the Gates Foundation. So it's very excited, as you can tell, to sort of kickstart some of that behavioral science capability and it was an exhilarating journey, but it was also a very hard journey. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, looking back, I, I want to lay out some of those barriers based on my experience. Uh, and I'll use the behavioral insights team fabulous EAST framework. You know, we need to make something easy, attractive, social, and timely. So as you mentioned, it's not easy to set up this behavioral science capability because of the talent pipeline. There's a mismatch between talented professionals and uh, what they need to learn in terms of behavioral science. In a country like India, there, there isn't actually uh, even a behavioral science course or training that people can take. 
Uh, second, uh, there is no research infrastructure. So you have all these great insights, you want to run experiments, especially with low income and marginalized populations. How are you going to do that? Uh, it takes forever to run that. It's not attractive. Uh, there's no incentives for Global North researchers actually to work with folks in the Global South or non-weird countries. Uh, and the demand from local decision makers is also quite tentative because they haven't seen this work in their country. So it's not attractive to, to start something. It's definitely not social. You know, many times we felt you're the lonely warrior. There's no community. But it was timely. I will say that. Uh, it was timely to start to think about that. There was a lot of interest. So I want to talk about one solution because you did talk, Grace, about partnerships. And you talked about partnership between uh, universities in the UK, LSE and others. I want to talk about a particular partnership, which is a South-South partnership, which is partnerships between non-weird countries themselves. And remember, that's 88% of the world's population. So there's a lot of scope for partnerships there. So when I was at the center, we actually uh, had this partnership with Busara, with the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. And that's because you know we thought that instead of tying up, and not instead of, but in addition to tying up with a lot of the well-known behavior science folks, why not look for someone who had tried to solve the same challenges in the same low resource settings? Uh, and lo and behold, Basara headquartered in Nairobi had been doing that in Kenya and Tanzania and Nigeria. Um, so it was a great partnership. We worked on a project uh, to look at how we might increase our consumption of iron and folic acid tablets amongst anemic women. These are rural pregnant women. Uh, what might we do? Um, and it was great because it wasn't the right thing to do, which of course it was, but it was also great because we were both sharing similar challenges. So we set up the research infrastructure. Uh, you know, we had this, this very cool bus that we took out and outfitted with laptops and actually went to the rural villages instead of having them come to uh, the lab. It was attractive because once we, we ran about five experiments, we were able to show the results of that to policymakers and to decision makers. And so people began to say, oh, that's what you mean by behavioral science applied to my problem. I get that now. So we saw a lot more demand. And of course, you know, nothing better than having someone else facing the same challenges to actually have to talk to. So it really helped to build that community. So I do think one of the missing links that we, uh, we should really be working on right now is the sort of non-weird or South-South partnerships in addition to North-South partnerships. And these already exist. Uh, so, you know, what I've been working on in the last few months is really trying to do that on a regional basis. Uh, and I would call on everyone to uh, to set those goals. We know from uh, behavioral science research, from the work of Locke and Latham, that setting specific goals is better than a do your best. So I'm going to exhort everyone at Nutstalk not to think about doing their best, but to set specific goals. If you're a funder, you know, commit to funding this work as the Gates Foundation did for two to three years. If you're a professional, commit to working on one of these. Uh, set set a specific goal. I'm going to, going to end with just this startling statistic. You talked about a tipping point, Grace, and I was reading the work by Erica Chenowitz, um, and she works actually in a different sphere of uh, revolutions and protest movements, which is you know, quite topical. Uh, and here's the statistic. She says, no government, she's done a lot of studies on this and looked at all these movements. No government has been able to withstand a challenge from 3.5% of the population. 3.5%, that's the tipping point. So I'm hoping that you know we're all part of that 3.5%, uh, and let's make it happen. Thank hey, you. thank you. Thank you, Neela. So now I think we are all in agreement that um, behavioral science is a, is a bit weird. 
Um, but we also see this weirdness sort of spilling over into the field as a profession. So for all the known benefits of leveraging and employing talent in this space of uh, behavioral and, and social science, um, the field still remains largely homogenous. And while you know, I personally can't control for many of the factors that uh, contribute to this disparity, uh, there is one area that uh, I, you know, I may be able to, to help close the gap, and I'll talk about that coming up in a minute. Um, the profound behavioral insight upon which this is based is you can't be what you don't see. So one hypothesis I have among many that are out there, I'm sure, is that this, this disparity, this lack of diversity in our profession um, stems from mental models that may constitute what is a real or legitimate science um, as part of what we call you know, STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and, and math. And these mental models may then shape decision-making for uh, a more non-traditional, if you will, career path. So social science, it may not sound rigorous enough or scientific enough or hard enough you know, to be part of STEM. And even if one buys into, you know, yes, it, it does belong in there, what can one actually do with it? So enter exhibit A, that would be me. <laughs> so I knew from the time that I was about uh, four or five years old, and I am not making this up, I used to watch uh, Perry Mason on TV with my grandmother, and I knew that I was going to be a lawyer. And, uh, and, and, and I was pretty strong in this all the way through school. And so by the time I entered college, my major was pre-law. And I randomly picked psychology because you could, you could major in anything and then go into law school. And I was going to law school. Um, so I take psych 101 and by and large, I really like it. Surprisingly so, I was, I was, I was really into it. And then one day this teaching assistant, African-American teaching assistant came up to me. She wasn't even my teaching assistant for my section. Don't know why she picked me out, but she said, um, have you ever heard of engineering psychology? And I thought, no, I haven't. And she says, well, I think you should look into it. It may be something that interests you. And I just thought it, you know, a little bit odd, but politely I said, okay. And then she left. And I, and I promise you, I've not seen this woman since taking that psych 101 class. But um, I did go and, and, you know, to the, to the psych office and I looked up engineering psychology. And what do you know, it, it did seem a, a, a bit interesting. And so um, I sort of stayed with it. And by senior year, um, I was completing an honors thesis in theories of automaticity. I paired up with uh, one of the professors, Art Kramer, in, in uh, engineering psychology to, to do this. That teaching assistant coming to me to tell me about engineering psychology is my first recollection of a nudge. And it was a nudge that changed the choice architecture for me um, in terms of considering what might be um, a viable field in terms of, in terms of a profession. Um, so I graduated with that 
degree in pre-law psychology. I promise the degree actually still says pre-law. I went on to graduate school in psychology and then on to work in the automotive industry and in and, and CPG for a number of years. And now finally at Coca-Cola, uh, where we leverage these principles of behavioral science uh, to inform our solutions that uh, refresh the world and, and make a difference. And you know, all because of, of these nudges. Before graduating, actually, let me take one little step back. I asked my advisor, my thesis advisor um, in, in undergrad, I said, why does anybody care about these theories of, of automaticity in the real world? How would anyone use it? And he gave me a couple of examples um, and he says, well, but maybe that's something you can solve. And there, that was my second nudge, if you will. And so everything that I've done after that, my whole trajectory in, in this profession of behavioral science is a direct result of those two nudges in particular. And so I, I submit to you that at this, uh, this point in time where we have this lack of diversity in, in our profession, that we don't have to fall off the cliff over it. It may be as simple as each one of us, and that's what, 27 to 30,000 that's, uh, that's partic participating in this conference, uh, to identify the mental models of those underrepresented groups in our respective markets. Um, that may act as barriers to entry and then take the time to nudge them um, and change their choice architecture. And so I pledge, my commitment is to go back home. I am from Chicago. And so my commitment is to go back home to my high school, Hyde Park Career Academy on the south side of Chicago and bear witness to what is possible. If you can't be what you can't see, I need them to see what they can be. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that in terms of the, the profession as a whole, particularly for, um, for those, those private companies in, in our industry, I would offer three recommendations uh, for you to increase and, and help us close this gap in diversity that we have. One would be to work alongside your um, your diverse, your internal diversity networks. Um, oftentimes in companies will have, you know, the African-American network, the Asian network, the LGBTQ network, uh, the Latino net network. Work alongside those to go into your community and provide that exposure um, to students when they are most impressionable, when they're thinking about what is it that I want to be when I grow up, and then pr and provide that exposure to the disciplines of behavioral science. And everyone doesn't have to be a psychologist. Within behavioral science, we have economists, we have uh, sociologists, we have anthropologists and neuroscientists. Um, but the exposure, that awareness, that nudge, if you will, I think will we'll get us a long way. Number two, recruit uh, from HBCUs in the United States or uh, those, inter those institutions where you have a larger population of those underrepresented groups. And three, be deliberate in practicing unconscious bias in hiring. So I open it up to questions. I think all three of us.
Thank you. Yes, I've got some questions coming in. And to the audience, you can use Slido. Um, Slido. We, uh, if you go to slido.com and look for Nudge Stock, type that in there. You'll hit our event, and you can type in your questions. And I'm going to go looking at those now. Um, first question that I'll pull up here is, <laughs> are behavioral scientists blind to their own biases, says the questioner. And I'll, I'll let you, uh, you just indicate to me who wants to take each one of these questions. Go ahead for it, Grace. <laughs> Unmute yourself, Grace. There is a bias that's called bias blind spot that basically talks about the fact that just because we know about the biases doesn't necessarily mean that we don't succumb to them. So I can say for sure that behavioral scientists are do succumb to the same biases as everyone else. And I think when I spoke about hiring, I do encourage us as a profession to look at similarity bias, familiarity bias, halo effect in the same way as we would expect anybody else in another profession to do. Just because we know about it doesn't mean that we stop it. Absolutely agree. We are we are humans first. So yes, we are subject to the same biases. I just want to add in addition to the biases, it's the, um, the intent to action gap. So the same reason that we don't move on our diversity efforts is the reason we hit snooze on the alarm clock in the morning. Uh, we want to do it, it's just too much effort. So we push it back and it's too overwhelming. So I do think that's something that it, it's not people don't want to do it. It's just getting from intent to action. The next question here is, what are your thoughts on recruitment quotas for diversity? Who'd like to tackle that one? So this, I can, I, 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 okay. yeah, I was going to leave it for Sarita because you're, you're in private <laughs> company, but, so do, do, do uh, contradict me if, if, if you think this is wrong. I mean, I think that quotas are only there when we're, we're not seeing heterogeneity anyway. So it gets us to a place that we need to be. I would prefer if it happened in a different way. So for example, I do a lot of work in financial and professional services firms, and it's much better for people to be hired, rec recognizing that the customers of these firms actually are extraordinarily diverse. So for example, they tend to be 50% men, 50% women, but we don't get that gender representation on boards and, uh, and in a lot of jobs and um, throughout the organizations. And without those quotas, we wouldn't move the boat because we had tried for many years and it didn't, it didn't actually happen. So I think it's a way to get us to a status quo, which is a good status quo for firms, but it would be better if we actually recognize the benefit and the value that people are bringing to the organization. I also think quotas help really force us to expand networks. So your default is the five people you know and the five people they know. And you know, this happened with us at the center as well. You don't intend to be homogenous, you end up being like that. Because especially when there's a time limit on hiring, you've got an urgent project, you'll just default to who you know best. And you, our networks, you know, often tend up end up being more homogenous than we realize. So it really forced us. We didn't have hard quotas, but it forced us to say, no, let's not just just go with this person, but let's look further and let's actually push a little more and let's actually try and get different profiles in. Uh, and I, I agree with the value of diversity. It brings in new thought. Absolutely. A question. Um, go ahead, Sarita. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I agree. I agree with my peers here. And, you know, to the extent that we're um, taking the effort, making the effort to, um, to search for that talent and have them 
uh, have that 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 representation of talent as um, as part of the consideration set at the very least, and then um, make sure that we are um, applying that 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 those those sort of tenets of unconscious bias when we are hiring. Um, that more so than a quota per se um, is going to move us in the right direction of, of uh, having better or greater diversity. And you do need to be careful about backfire effects with quotas. So, um, and this is where data science can help us. So there's some evidence to suggest that the quotas here in London kind of led the, the daughters of the previous CEOs to be hired um, as compared to their sons. So you might then ask, is that true diversity if we're kind of shifting towards everyone still being in the upper class, but just shifting across gender? So I think moderating whether or not there's crowd out effects across other groups becomes very important. Last question here. Any advice for the current Black Lives Matter protests to get meaningful change using behavioral science for all three of you? So for me, it's about for people who are out there saying that they care about Black Lives Matter, where they have resources, that they're pledging those resources now. So their words are followed by a commitment to action that's visible and that can actually be followed up. Absolutely. And that's I mean, that's why I think all of us you've heard from all three of us talking about what we are committing to do. Um, so I think that, yes, it's, it's, it's awesome that that money is being given, you know, to various organizations, we need to continue doing that. Um, but that needs to be very quickly followed with with some actions as well. And my only thought is the three and a half percent, you know, let's have that sustained uh, participation. And what Sarita said about you can't be what you can't see. So it's incumbent on all of us who are non-Black to actually be out there so that it doesn't get seen as just, you know, a particular movement, but it's a universal movement. Well, Nudstock is very grateful for you to come here and talk about this. And I think more than talk, it's clear that in its eighth year, nudge stock is also just as guilty as the rest of behavioral science or many fields of science. And we genuinely take that on board. So beyond the talk, we look to your guidance going forward as well. So Sarita Bethay, Neela Saldana and Grace Lorden, thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you.